Hello, listeners. This is VoiceOver Work, an audiobook sampler. Where do you listen? I'm your host, Russell, and today is September 13th, 2022. It's a Tuesday. Tuesdays mean it's chapter by chapter preview day. And today we take a look at Erwin Cordero's The Backyard Homestead Guide for Self-Sufficiency. Your guide for this journey into homesteading and self-sufficiency is Erwin Cordero, who's been doing in-depth research and practicing this lifestyle for over 10 years. His intention is to prevent you from spending unnecessary money, making a ton of mistakes, or taking months or even years to have a successful homestead. Thanks for being with us today. This is the chapter-by-chapter preview of Erwin Cordero's The Backyard Homestead Guide for Self-Sufficiency. Chapter 1. Backyard Homestead and Introduction In 1862, President Abraham Lincoln signed the Homestead Act, which gave the average American the opportunity to claim up to 160 acres of land, as long as they agreed to live on it, improve it, and pay a small registration fee. The act gave over 270 million acres to everyday citizens with the promise of living and improving the land. What is homesteading? Homesteading is a lifestyle characterized by the devotion to self-sufficiency, growing and preserving food and generating electricity using solar, wind, or water. Some homesteaders take it a step further and vow to never use money, preferring to make or barter for all of their needs. Others may take a more cautious approach, and while they want to produce as many resources as possible for themselves and their families, they may be okay with using some money or working a job with the goal of one day becoming fully self-sufficient. As you learn more about this practice, you'll realize that not all homesteaders share the same set of values. There is a diverse group of people who say yes to this way of life. You'll find that there are people who do this because they're just tired of the daily grind of urban living, while some want to prepare for economic hardships. Others enjoy living off the land and watching things grow as they plant, harvest, and then preserve their foods. Whatever your reasons for considering it or learning more about it, one thing's for sure, you've just made a great decision. Homesteading is a humbling experience, an eye-opener to how simple life can be and how small you are within the rest of the world. Off-the-grid To quickly explain an off-the-grid lifestyle, it's essential to define a couple of terms. The grid is a term used to refer to the network of utilities and amenities provided to people by municipalities, including electricity, water, and sewage. The term is sometimes expanded to include other services, such as garbage pickup and groceries, though these are not strictly included. Going off the grid refers to a lifestyle choice where a person sets up their property to take care of their needs, usually, but not always, in a remote or rural area. People who choose an off-grid lifestyle find ways to produce their amenities for themselves, such as using wells, solar power, or propane heaters. Many people who live off the grid also produce some or all of their food on site by gardening, raising livestock, hunting, trapping, fishing, or foraging. 
People who live off the grid may also choose to homeschool their children, take household repairs into their own hands, and generally live off the land in a self-sufficient manner. Zero Waste Sustainability Zero waste is a philosophy of resource management that strives to close the loop by preventing waste from ever occurring or recapturing and using any waste that does occur. Zero waste is one approach to sustainable living. Zero wasters generally extend their philosophy beyond trash disposal and take steps to reduce consumption and reuse, i.e. upcycling and recycle. Zero waste living is all about being resourceful and reducing waste while also feeling good about what you have. You don't need to give up nearly as much stuff to live better and reduce your footprint on the earth. By learning how to live a zero waste... Chapter 2. Planning, Budgeting, and Skill Acquisition Homesteading takes planning and careful budgeting to succeed, and you can even make some income while living the kind of life you want. This chapter oversees the principles of planning and budgeting because some tasks take seconds to accomplish while others might take hours of your time. As for skill levels, you'll need to plan for the different skills required for your homesteading activities. You can learn many of these skills from books, but others require more hands-on instruction from an experienced individual. How to Budget Your Time Start by listing what you need to do. Bracket the more time-consuming tasks. Factor in how long these tasks will take versus how much work they'll get you. Consider which task is best suited for which skill set. Carpentry, gathering scraps, animal handling, etc. Do whatever task you believe is easiest based on your skill set. This will not only make any skills you had before homesteading much more self-sufficient, but it helps you spot which skill sets need attention and which skill sets need to be honed. An example of this would be starting your garden from scratch. If you have the skills necessary to start a successful garden, you can fully understand how much time you'll need to invest and how much food you'll be able to produce versus how much it costs. In addition to skill development, budgeting is a crucial practice for homesteading. Money management is probably one of the most important things in homesteading that no one ever talks about. It all boils down to one simple thing, how much money you'll need to spend on groceries each month and where the money will come from each month. The importance of budgeting cannot be stressed enough. If you don't plan out how much money you'll spend each month on groceries, you're going to end up going over budget with no way to compensate for your purchases. Planning for homesteading. 1. Using what you have, your backyard. Often people get caught up in the idea that they need every little tool or gadget for every single thing they plan on doing. This isn't true at all, and is especially untrue for homesteading. Using what you already have is a great way to save money and a great way to make something out of nothing. However, this will only work if you plan your entire homestead around this concept. Rather than buying every new gadget or tool that comes out on the market, here are a few ideas to think about. Use what you already have and what's just lying around outside. Gather up anything you could use in some form or fashion 
like wood pallets or milk crates. If you need a wheelbarrow, try making one with an old tire and some scrap wood. If your garden needs some support, use your experience to guide you in making homemade stakes or trellises. Upcycling or reusing materials such as old clothes or broken toys and turning them into useful household items. If you need a six-inch gap between two signs on your fence, try cutting the top and bottom off an old plastic flower pot. Using garden boxes is one effective way to get more food out of the ground. If you have everything you need right outside your door, then why spend money on something you can make yourself? Not only do you not have to spend your money, it can be fun to put together weird gadgets like this. I'll give you a few examples of things that you can make very inexpensively out of just about anything lying around in your yard. Chapter 3. Food Production. A Guide to Backyard Farming. Starting a homestead from your backyard is interesting, and one of the hallmarks is being able to grow your own food. This chapter discusses food production and how to get started in growing and tending different types of crops in a self-sufficient manner. Space Maximization You need to know how best to manage a small space in your house using methods like using a greenhouse. When starting a homestead, the first thing to remember is that not all land is equal. If you have a large amount of space and can afford to dedicate a large portion to agricultural purposes, then you should do it for the sake of self-sufficiency. Even if you have enough space for a few acres of crops, try to remember that different plants will require different amounts of space and sunlight. For example, corn or wheat requires more room than lettuces or herbs. Gardening in a backyard can be challenging, but can also be rewarding. It takes time, patience, willingness, and creativity to transform a landscape into an edible garden that supplies you with a steady food supply. For limited space, maximizing the little space you have will serve to maximize each space's yield. Grow herbs in window boxes. Grow three or four types of herbs instead of just one. Grow vertically to dramatically increase the square footage in a given area. Vertical growing can help maximize your available area by stacking certain plants vertically to the sun, like tomatoes or cucumbers. Choosing the right crops. The next thing to do is decide what you'll be growing in your garden. This is a personal choice, and you should consider that not everyone's tastes are the same. It would help if you mainly looked into what you think you can efficiently grow and sell at the market to bring in the most income and require the least room. For example, berries are a great source of income, but they require more space than lettuce. Once you know what crops you want to grow, it's time to plan how they will all fit into your property. Being self-sufficient means producing everything yourself, but that doesn't mean there isn't any room for planting other things like trees or bushes. When planting a homestead, draw a map of your property and decide where you can best fit each type of crop that you've chosen to grow. Starter Vegetables Indoor crops include broccoli, Brussels sprouts, cabbage, and tomatoes. Cauliflower, celery, eggplant, and peppers should also be started indoors. Tender vegetables 
like tomatoes, eggplants, and peppers, are susceptible to spring cold, so start them indoors and protect them from the elements. Cucumbers, muskmelon, pumpkins, squash, and watermelon are among the plants that do not transplant from inside to outside well. These are all tender, so don't sow them outside if frost is imminent. Some plants simply refuse to move. To avoid disturbing the roots of root vegetables, like carrots and turnips, it's best to start them directly in the ground rather than transplanting them later. Plants with long tap roots like dill and parsley also dislike being transplanted. Finally, plants like radishes and peas grow so quickly and are so cold-tolerant that planting them early makes the most sense. Although many people in their early 20s may be eager to start their adventures, you should not overlook the amount of time it will take to build. Chapter 4. Soil Development and Care The soil used in farming makes all the difference for you as a homesteader. This chapter talks about soil quality and improving or developing the soil to ensure maximum results in your homesteading farming efforts. Many homesteaders, amongst other things, are also looking for a guide on how they can develop the soil they use in planting. That's why this chapter is about teaching this important aspect. Discuss the topic as in-depth as possible, making it easy, even for a beginner in homesteading, to get started on this topic. Soil Assessment Gardening is a staple of homesteading life, and there are various ways to do it. The first thing you need to determine is the soil quality on your property. A soil test determines the health and fertility of the soil by determining its pH level and pinpointing the nutrients that are deficient or excessive. Knowing this information can help you know what, if anything, you can successfully plant and how to make your soil healthier so that you can put in a wider variety of plants. A soil test is suggested annually or as needed and can be done at any time of the year, although fall is preferable. These tests can usually be obtained through a local county extension office, though some agriculture universities and similar places also do testing. Many of these tests may charge a small fee. How to do a soil test 1. Take roughly a cup worth of soil from different areas of the property, air-dried. 2. Samples should not be taken when the soil is wet or recently fertilized. 3. Store it in an airtight container or Ziploc bag. 4. Label each sample with the area of the property that it came from and the collection date. 5. Test for pH level. Effectively tests how acidic the soil is. Testing pH levels. For this, you'll need a pH strip, which you can buy in your local pharmacies. 1. Pour in distilled water. 2. Stir or swirl vigorously. 3. Rest for 30 minutes. 4. Pour the soil sample into a clean glass via a coffee filter. 5. Ensure that you're capturing solids while allowing liquid to pass. 6. Dip the test strip in. 7. Pay attention to the instructions on the box for how long to soak the strip. This usually takes less than a minute or two. 8. 
Compare the color to the pH chart on the packaging. Soil with a pH level between 6 and 6.5 will generally contain all the major nutrients that most plants need. A higher pH level can indicate lower nutrients, such as phosphorus or iron. Lower pH levels indicate too many of these same kinds of nutrients. By doing this testing, you'll be able to see exactly what needs to be added or eliminated from your soil and look into exactly how to do that to have the healthiest soil possible for your plants. Although we use the word soil to mean the variety of earth in our gardens, soil comes in a wide variety of compositions. This may sound like an obvious point. However, some plants grow better in different soil types. The primary soil components are loam, sand, clay, and silt. You desire loamy... Chapter 5. Food Preservation Guide It's not just enough to grow food. Homesteaders must also know how to preserve them for a long time to avoid losing money on food waste. This chapter explains different food preservation methods and guides the readers on how to get started practicing each of the methods. In this chapter, we discuss the most common methods of preserving food. These include drying, pickling, jams and jellies, canning. Of these four methods, drying is the most common for herbs and some meats, but requires caution when dealing with moist, bacteria-susceptible foods like meats and moisture-heavy vegetables. Other preservation methods include freezing, oil or vinegar suspensions, blends, and emulsions. Drying. Drying is one of the most common methods of preserving herbs and leafy plants, as well as some meats. However, various methods of drying yield varying results and should be used appropriately for each item to be preserved. Drying food works because it simply removes the moisture from the food and prevents decay. There are four main ways to do this. Sun drying air drying, oven or microwave drying, dehydrating. Sun drying. It's only safe to sun dry foods with a high sugar and acid content. Temperature for drying will need to be at least 85 degrees. It's only safe to sun dry foods with a high sugar and acid content, limiting you to fruit, including tomatoes. You'll only be able to dry food using this method if you know you're going to have a run of hot, dry days with less than 60% humidity. The temperature will need to be at least 85 degrees. Slice your fruit, place it on a stainless steel sheet or a fiberglass or plastic screen, and leave it out in the sun, turning occasionally. Sun drying is perfect if you live in California like me, but not a method open to you if you live somewhere with a less sunny climate. Air drying. Ideal for drying leafy herbs. Needs a dark, warm, dust-free place with good circulation to dry. Screens may be used for drying some plants. Air drying is perfect for drying bunches of leafy herbs. You'll need to hang them somewhere dark, dust-free, and warm to dry them effectively, and you'll need to ensure that there's good air circulation in the room. You may also use a screen to dry smaller leaves and stemless bunches. Oven or microwave drying. Using a microwave or oven to dry food requires setting the microwave or oven to its lowest possible power setting. How much success you'll have with oven and microwave drying slightly depends on your device. 
Newer models sometimes have a dehydrate setting, in which case it's simple. 1. Set your device to dehydrate at 140 degrees Fahrenheit and place a lined tray of thinly sliced fruits or vegetables inside. If your oven doesn't have a dehydrate setting, set on the lowest possible setting and leave the door slightly ajar. Switch your trays around every half hour or so and keep a close eye on your products so you can stop them from scorching. Bear in mind that this isn't a particular energy-efficient way of drying food, so if you think you'll be doing it often, it might be wise to invest in a dehydrator. Dehydrating. Used to dry fruits, vegetables, and herbs. Energy-efficient with multiple drying trays. Foods should be smaller or thin. There's a gadget for everything these days, and dehydrating is no exception. In fact, it's a perfect example of how to integrate modern technology into a cell. Chapter 6, Energy Conservation and Resourcefulness Guide. Energy conservation, recycling, and resourcefulness are life skills that any homesteader needs, and good homesteaders pride themselves on their efficient energy use and expertise at energy conservation. In this chapter, the details of this important topic will be discussed so you can be a great homesteader. This chapter walks the homesteader through energy conservation and gives lessons on how to be resourceful as a homesteader. This chapter will not gloss over any part of the topic, and the readers will be given sufficient education on energy conservation and how to get started with doing it from their backyard. Water storage. It's always recommended to have water stored in the case of an emergency, be it a natural disaster or simply a problem with the water supply. The Center for Disease Control and Prevention recommends storing at least one gallon of water per person per day for at least two weeks. Remember that you'll also need to store water for your garden and animals. How to store water. Two types of water are essential for long-term survival, water for cleaning, and potable or drinkable water. Each must be stored and or treated relative to its intended use. The ways to safely store water include original containers. Water may be stored in the original drinking bottles or larger water containers for up to six months without treatment, if the containers are not open. Food-grade containers While BPA is considered a health risk, carcinogenic, most food-grade containers made of PVC or plastics no longer contain this chemical. Food-grade containers should be cleaned and sterilized before use then sealed. Use for potable water Sanitized PVC or plastic Food-grade PVC barrels, drums, or containers of varying sizes may be used to store drinking water, while non-food-grade units may be used to store water for washing or pet water. Sanitized non-food-grade containers. These should be used for storing water that's not used for drinking, but may be used for cleaning and pet drinking water. Non-potable use only. Stainless steel or aluminum containers. Many water bottles have stainless steel liners, as well as much larger thermos and cooling units. Drinking water may be stored safely in these if they're clean and sanitized for several months. Glass containers. While glass is vulnerable to breaking, the glass unit does not transmit or retain bacteria well, so water may be stored in these units for brief periods, whether potable or non-potable. Storage locations. Water should be stored in a cool location away from direct sunlight. Refrigeration units. In sealed containers, underground, or in your basement, where temperatures do not vary dramatically. Treatment of water. 
Water may be purified in a variety of ways, including UV irradiation. This is costly and not energy efficient. Purification tablets. These tablets are available at outdoor equipment retailers for the treatment of creek water. Boiling. Boil water for at least three to five minutes to purify it. Distillation. This is very time and energy intensive and produces water that lacks the essential minerals of spring water. Bleach. Adding four drops of unscented bleach to one quart of water will kill most bacteria and viruses. Water in regular plastic jugs doesn't last forever because plastic breaks down and picks up bacteria over time. To store water safely, it's recommended to use a dedicated water storage drum that is specifically designed to keep your water safe for longer. The price of a 1,000-gallon storage drum for water ranges from $500 to $1,000. Chapter 7. Livestock Farming This chapter will be a detailed guide to animal care and livestock farming for the homesteader. We'll discuss everything about livestock farming, how to choose the right animals for your lifestyle, and how to care for them. No matter what animals you decide to keep, there are basic elements of care you'll need to meet. These can essentially be boiled down to shelter, water, food, and hygienic conditions. Shelter All animals need shelter, particularly at night. Their well-being should be reason enough to provide it, but it's also important if you're to get the most out of your animals. For example, animals raised for milk are especially vulnerable at night and are prone to frozen teats when they get too cold, which will have a negative effect on your milk supply. Shelter can take various forms depending on the animal it's designed for, but it must be clean and dry with good ventilation. It will need to be cleaned out regularly and should provide a safe and calming environment for your livestock. Water Water, of course, is essential to all animals, and any livestock you keep should have permanent access to clean, fresh water for good health. Again, this is particularly important for animals raised for milking. One function that water has is to help an animal regulate its body temperature. So during the winter, it's a good idea to warm their water slightly. If it's too cold, they'll need to expend more energy increasing their body temperature, and you'll find you need to increase their feed. Food. Your livestock will need a good diet that provides them with all their nutritional requirements. Although they may be able to forage a little, They'll be unable to fend for themselves in your care and will need a high-quality feed with a good balance of protein, vitamins, and minerals. Bear in mind that you'll need to spend more on feed during the winter when your animals will need to eat more to maintain a healthy body temperature. Generally speaking, feeding your animals small amounts regularly is the best approach for reducing waste and making sure they're all fed consistently. Good hygiene Good hygiene for animals looks a little different from how it looks for us. What I mean here is ensuring that their shelter is clean and comfortable, and that means providing fresh wood chips, sand, and sawdust as appropriate. This will help your animals to keep warm and comfortable and reduce the buildup of manure and dirt, which can eventually lead to health problems. Livestock Farming for the Homesteader Considerations for Livestock Raising Zoning Rules Size of Property Costs Predators Containment needs, weather conditions, maintenance inputs, feed availability. The type of animals that you graze on your homestead largely is dictated by the number of factors. In zoning, size of property, availability of feed and cost to raise, process and store products, 
and cost-benefit of raising the animals. Local risk factors play a role as well, such as predators and resulting safety or containment, such as a fence, corral, barn needs, range of weather conditions available to the livestock, and maintenance time commitment. In addition to the wonder of raising chickens, expanding the types of animals on your homestead can increase the number of products you can get from these animals. Meat and milk are the two goods that people think of the most. Even bones from the animals you raise can be used to make bone broth. There are also physical goods that don't go to the dinner table. These include things like leather, fur, and wool. Even fertilizer can be gathered from the animals you raise to benefit your homestead. Whatever animals you decide to raise, you'll also need to choose how you want to raise them. There are many different styles of farming. Each one has its benefits and drawbacks. Most of the differences between the different styles of farming are in their cost, their labor. Chapter 8. Profit-Making for the Backyard Homesteader Homesteaders can often make money doing what they do. This chapter explains the how-to to the readers. Many off-gridders create a fully self-sustainable environment for themselves by also working for themselves or remotely in some capacity or another. While getting started living off-grid can be expensive, depending on the location you choose and the size of your home and property, sustaining living off-grid can be very cost-effective. This entirely depends on your lifestyle, though. While many people living off-grid make a living selling things they grow or make, there are also plenty of ways to work remotely. Off-grid living does not mean having to sacrifice and live hand-to-mouth. You can make a good income doing things you're passionate about. I know people living off-grid, RVing full-time around the country, and are bringing in five figures per month from their remote work. If you're going to be doing anything online, all you need is a reliable internet connection and the motivation to work remotely. Working and living off of your land. Many people choose to live off-grid and homestead where they make money selling products from farming, raising livestock, and beekeeping. Unless you have a very large family, you can sell many of your products for a good profit. One of the biggest things about earning a full-time income while living off-grid is still being able to enjoy your off-grid lifestyle. You don't want to be working yourself ragged 100 hours per week to make ends meet. That's not the point here. Homesteading can and should be an enjoyable learning experience. There are a myriad of ways to earn money while homesteading, some common to many farms, others more innovative. We'll describe a few of these opportunities in this chapter, starting with knife making. Knife making. Knife making requires some skill, but by starting small, you can learn the techniques and find your niche. Your market will depend upon the potential clients that you can reach. In rural communities, hunting and survival knives are popular, while in small town regions, kitchen knives or workshop utility knives may have the best chance to successfully sell. Your niche may also include decorative knives that you can market on the internet or at craft, hunting, outdoors, or gardening shows. Decorative handles 
and even decorative blades attract collectors. To start, you'll need minimal supplies. A 4.5-inch angle grinder, several sheets of sandpaper with progressive grit ratings, a 1,084 medium-hard steel blank, synthetic handle blanks preferred over wood or bone, a rat-tail chainsaw file, flat and half-round files, a triangle file, a scribe, a grease pencil, vernier calipers, and a bench vise are your basic tools that you'll need. As you advance and improve your knife-making skills, you'll add more elaborate, labor-reducing tools. There are a few basic steps to making your blades. 1. Outline or scribe the perimeter or silhouette of your blade, including the full tent. That's it for this week's episode of Voice Over Work, an audiobook sampler. Where do you listen? Hope you have a pleasant and productive week, and we'll see you on Saturday for our next audiobook preview. And happy birthday, James. <laughs>